Praise the Lord. Amen. How about we declare two times, praise the Lord together. Amen. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, thank the Lord for bringing all of us together. Outside is so cold, but I think within us we are hot. We are burning, and the Spirit is burning in us. Uh, in these two short days, we want to fellowship with you this uh, subject, which is, uh, I would say, rather simple. Uh, maybe we can all read the general subject together. You have the outlines, okay? Let's read it together. Crucial factors for the vital practice of the church life. So in these two days, uh, we have five meetings, five messages. We will cover with you five crucial factors. These are crucial factors for the vital practice of the church, of the church life. The burden, particularly, is related to the matter of vital. The church life on the earth today must be vital. We, we, we all know and we all are familiar with the Lord's word in Matthew sixteen eighteen, where he declared, Upon this rock I will build my church. Then he follows by saying, Then the gates of Hades shall not prevail. Surely the church... The Lord prophesied that he will build. It's not an ordinary church. It's not a traditional church. It's not a church just carrying on a kind of a religious routine. But it's a church that is victorious. A church that is, uh, that is full of vitality. A church full of life. That the gates of Hades, which is a gates opening Hades is the collection, collecting place of death, that death cannot prevail. Because the church that Jesus is building upon himself is full of life, so victorious, so overcoming, that there's no place for death. Death cannot, cannot prevail against such a church. I feel in these last days that uh, we, on the one hand, we need to be aware that in these last days, the enemy, Satan, is still, as in the days of old, trying to invade the church. The gates of Hades has been knocking on the church for the last 2,000 years, but praise the Lord, he has not prevailed. And he is knocking harder in these final days of this age that we need to pray that the church on the earth today would be victorious, would be prevailing, would be one with this a victorious Christ, would be full of vitality. Surely, you know, I think we all enjoy our singing together this morning, our exercising of our spirit. You know, this is not a traditional kind of uh, a Christian gathering, someone just uh, give a sermon and everybody just nod their head. Well, this is a, a time for the Lord to minister his word to us so that our spirit may be put on fire. Amen. That uh, the veils may be removed, 
that we may enter more into his heart's desire. We want to be the vital ones uh, on the earth today. We don't want to just perform a religious duty, carry out a kind of a church routine week after week. Uh, there is something much more important, much more crucial that is at stake. God's purpose is at stake. Uh, we are not here to just play church to carry on some kind of a religious routine. I believe even in these two short days, the Lord will accomplish very much. Open up to us what is on his heart. And uh, this matter of vitality is, uh, um, you know, as we always define it as uh, being living and active. We need to be living, full of life, and also full of activities. But often we may uh, uh, hang on to the activity, active part. We need to do something. Uh, we need to, uh, uh, to, uh, to evangelize. We need to uh, be active in, in, in the outward sense. I don't disagree with that. But uh, to be vital is more than just full of activities outside. Actually, to be vital has to start from within. We need to be vitalized by the Lord within us. And everything that we do outwardly, whether it's uh, shepherding a young one, a new one, preaching the gospel, it has to begin from within us. The vitalization has to uh, begin from inside, and then everything that we do is actually a reflection as a cooperation, continuation of what the Lord started within us. So, um, as the crucial factors that we, are, uh, we like to focus on in these messages, they touch more on the, uh, with respect to the inner, the inner aspect the intrinsic aspect of this vitalization, related particularly to the vision that we must see. When you see a vision, a vision will energize you, will motivate you, right? will empower you, will embolden you. So a vision is important. This morning in the first message, we are going to begin with the, the vision of God's economy which is the central line of the entire divine revelation. If we see this vision, your heart burns. Your heart will be on fire, right? Just like Columbus, right, sailing, sailing on to discover the good land, he was governed by a vision that he saw, and in spite of all the difficulties, the hardship, he sailed on, he pressed on, and because of something that drove him from inside. He was not just sailing for the purpose of sailing, just to do something uh, to, uh, to make a difference. I believe he saw something from within him as a vision that drove him, that caused him to overcome all the difficulties. Spiritually, the same thing, that uh, we need the Lord to re- renew, refresh, the vision that we have seen, that the Lord has shown us. There are, many, uh, there are many who have been in the recovery, in the Lord's recovery for years, and there are also many who are 
fairly new, uh, who have joined us, who have been meeting with us. And regardless whether we are old or young, we need a fresh vision. Uh, The vision needs to be renewed and continue to be refreshed. So many of the things that we'll cover this weekend, you may say, are not new. Uh, Many are familiar terms, especially to the uh, older ones among us. And I pray the Lord will, that we will not just uh, turn off our ears and say, oh, God's economy. I've heard this for a thousand times now, right? And uh, what's new? What's new? God's economy. That's new. Very new, I tell you. You know, Brother Craig and I, we do teach God's economy class in the full-time training in Anaheim. And, uh, you know, every time, every, every time we, I, I went to class, you know, I, uh, I just feel I'm just touching this matter for the first time. It's, uh, God's economy should never be an old matter to us. If you feel, oh, I, I know this, I'm familiar with this, then you need to repent. You have become old. God's economy has never, has never been old. And this God's economy, which is the central line controlling the entire divine revelation, the whole Bible centers on this. So we can never be tired of this matter. We can never get um, uh, even uh, uh, overstress this matter. We need the Lord to continue to reveal, even to deepen our seeing of God's economy. In these days, particularly, a verse that uh, uh, speaks to me a lot is the Lord speaking to the overcomers in, Phil- in Philadelphia, where he told, uh, you know, Phil- the church in Philadelphia is the only church that was among the seven churches in Asia, uh, which was not rebuked by the Lord. To the overcomers there, the Lord says, Behold, I come quickly. Hold fast what you have, lest others take your crown. Hold fast what you have. They don't, they don't need to add. They don't need to get more new things, more new ideas. You hold fast what you have. I, really, I believe the Lord's coming, I believe we all realize, is, is drawing nigh. And in these next X number of years before the Lord returns, the test is on us. How well we hold fast. When we first hear something new for the first time, we are excited. And then we are, you know, we, we, because it's, it's new idea, new thought. But then, how do we continue? How do we hold fast not to let these things go? Especially... Things like God's economy, which seems so, uh, which has been uh, become somewhat repetitious, uh, as common, and now you have some amount of understanding. But have you held fast to this? So excitement has worn off, right? And the so-called you know new new sense have worn off, but if we realize the importance of this matter, that we will hold fast, we must hold fast 
Don't let anything to come to distract us, to, uh, to trade this with anything else. It's not, worth, it's not worth it. May we all be found like the overcomers in Philadelphia. Lord, I held fast what you have shown us. Yes, I've been listening, speaking, you know, this, the, uh, 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 God's economy, Christ, the church, and so forth. In one sense, it's nothing new. But on the other hand, spiritual things, we realize, is, is inexhaustible. We can never exhaust what the Lord, what in his word is revealed to us. It's not like just one plus one equals two. Now you understood it, and what that's it. But the spiritual things is fathomless, unfathomable, right? It's uh, bottomless. It, you keep digging in, there's more to be gained. So as long as we are poor in spirit, we are pure in heart, we are seeking him, the Lord will be able to show more to us. So this is the first vital, crucial factor we like to share with you in this message. I believe by seeing this inwardly, you'll be vitalized, right? In your preaching of the gospel, in your shepherding a young one. Why do you, want, why do, you do this? Not because you have to, not because somebody demanding you to do this, but inwardly, you, are, you have seen God's economy, right? This, this vision drives you. This, this vision empowers you to do what sometimes you, may got, uh, you get, uh, um, uh, you know, even tired, physically tired, but inwardly, you are just driven by this vision. You are, you are energized, vitalized by this. Now, let me get on this outline. The first point, we need to see a vision of God's economy. The house, his household administration. Saints, don't we agree that we need to see a vision? A vision in the Bible refers to something, a spectacular, spectacular scenery. Right? A scene that, is, that captures your attention. Not just an ordinary sight of something, but a spectacular view a scene of something that captures you. Many of you, you know, may not have been to America. You heard about a place like called Disneyland, and uh, they call it what? The, the happiest place on earth, right? And uh, that's what they call it, the happiest place on earth. And uh, you get to shake hands with Mickey Mouse and uh, Donald Duck, you know, and all these uh, uh, figures. And... Uh, well, so you heard, heard about it, people talk about it, and you may have read about it, and you got some information, and not until one day you step foot, you know, on uh, Disneyland, and you actually shake hand with uh, Donald Duck, you know, and wow, this is, this is Disneyland, right? Suddenly, a view, a view just uh, opened up before you, and you will never forget. It's much more than you know, what uh, people told you about, what you read about. Now you saw this, you've seen this with your own eyes. 
God's economy needs to be a vision to us, a vision that will capture us, that will control us, that will govern us. Well, I can testify to you, I mean, by the Lord's mercy, I have seen this vision, and this vision has directed, controlled my whole life up to this point. Even when I was a a younger person, when I was a a young believer by the Lord's mercy, that uh, I was presented this vision, I saw this vision, and once I saw the vision, I, my whole life is set. My whole direction, where I should go to school, where I should not go to school, how I conduct my living, my whole direction is set. And just because you have seen this vision one time, doesn't mean that that's it. You need to have, keep seeing the vision. Keep the vision fresh, renewed before you. This vision of God's economy, which is concerning his household administration. Economy in Greek is a word, oikonomia, com- com- comprised of two parts, two words. One is a house, oikos, nomia, which means a law or a management or administration. So oikonomia, economy, means a household administration. An administration related to a house or a household. God's economy refers to God's plan to administrate, to uh, arrange, to have an arrangement in relation to gaining a household. God desires to gain his house. A household refers to God's family, God's folks. God desires more than just to gain sinners, to just uh, redeem sinners, to gain a, get a lot of good people, religious people. God's desire is to gain a household. Saints, we are not only sinners saved by grace. We are God's folks. We are God's family. We are here, brothers and sisters. We are sons of God. We are members of the body of Christ. There is a life relationship that brings us here together. We are not just a kind of membership of a religious club, right? a religious association. We are part of God's household. This economy is related to God's gaining a household, right? Uh, his family members. And God's economy, here are three definitions uh, under Roman numeral one. A, can we read to, together? Amen. This economy of God is a plan of God. God has a plan. God is not an aimless God. God has a plan. We shouldn't think that God sits in the heaven. He has done everything already. He created the heavens and the earth, and and he is sitting there on the throne and waiting to see what people ask him, what they pray, what what they want. And then they will do, he will do this and little there and here and to help them out. No. Everything is 
being carried out according to His will. You know, in the Bible, there is such a verse in Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. It tells us, it is for His will we are and have our being. Our being, we are here because of God's will. We are not here by accident. We are not here by chance. Our existence, our being here, is because of His will. God has a plan, and His plan is from eternity to eternity. Our governments on the earth, they have plans, you know, to, to, uh, uh, prosper, to prosper the economy, to make it uh, to, to how to generate more uh, 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 trades, to, to increase uh, the, 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 the circulation of the, uh, uh, the, the money, and then to... to to cause the economy to prosper. Well, God also has a plan. God has also has an economy. But his economy is not so much in trying to, try to grasp more, more income, more money. Actually, God's economy is in his giving himself, Amen. dispensing himself. Not trying to seize, not trying to grasp, but he gives, he dispenses. This is God's economy. He, his plan to dispense, not dollar, not ran, but himself into his chosen, predestinated, redeemed people as their life and life supply. So what God is dispensing is his very self, his very being into us to make that our life, our life supply, even our everything, in order to produce, constitute, and build up this organic body of Christ, a corporate entity, an organism. Now, another definition, point B. Let's read. God's economy is to gain a group of people and work himself into them as life and he himself God's economy is related to his gaining a group of people, a group of human beings. We don't understand why God has this thought, but the Bible clearly tells us that God's interest, God has his interest in man. God is great, eternally great, unlimitedly great, but yet he desires to, to gain human beings, to be his vessel, to be his container, to be his channel for him to pass through. This is something altogether mysterious to man. God does not, God has millions of angels to help him to be his, to are his servants, but his choice, his desire is not with angels, his desire is man. Praise the Lord for humanity. Oh, I'm a man. I'm the center of God's plan. It's the center of the universe. Don't belittle man. Even though man has many shortages, many defects, many shortcomings, but yet God's interest is in man. God needs man. 
You may say man needs God. True. But let me tell you this morning, God needs man. Even more than you need God. God needs you to be his vessel, his container, his channel, his passageway, for him to to be contained, to be expressed, to flow forth. This is his will. So he needs to gain this group of people and work himself into them to be their life and even mingle himself with them as one. God does not want to remain in the heaven, wait for man to just ask him for what they want. God wants to enter into man, to mingle with man, to become one with man. This thought is not natural. We never would, we only think man needs help, then we need God to come to give us a lift, to give us, you know, give us, uh, to help us. But God's desire is to dispense, to work himself into you and me. And to mingle himself with you and me. Today, as Christians, as believers, we are not just merely cleansed by the Lord's blood, reconciled back to God, justified by God. Now we are ready to, we just have a ticket to go to heaven. No, that's not what a Christian life is about. A Christian is a God-man. It's a person who has God living within him, mingled with him, and being one with him. Right? It is not a small thing today. We are truly, as believers, we are truly God-man. Man yet God, God yet man. Of course, we can never claim to be God in his, in his, in his uh, status, in his Godhead. We have no share of that. Only God is able to create. He is the all-sovereign. Yet, God in his life and his, in his nature, he has imparted himself into us and mingled with us to become one with us. Isn't this marvelous? I mean, I know many Christians have realized that God lives, Christ lives in them. Christ is in them. But we need to go a little bit further to realize he is not only in me, he is mingled with me. He is even one with me. 1 Corinthians 6.17 tells us, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit. Today our spirit is not merely a human spirit, but it's a human spirit who has been, who has been in, who is now indwelt with the divine spirit. Just like if you squeeze some orange juice into a pitcher of water, plain water, well, instead of just dropping a, a whole orange into a bucket, into a pitcher of water, you can say the orange is in the water, is in the pitcher. Yes, it's in there, but you can still take it out quite readily, easily. But if you squeeze the orange juice into that water, pitcher of water, you cannot separate. You can ha- not ha- which part is orange juice, which part is H2O. It's all mingled together. When you drink that stuff, you drink orange water, right? Water orange. Oh, you just all mingle together. Today in our human spirit is mingled the divine spirit. Amen. Our, our spirit is a mingled spirit. And God's spirit and our human spirit have become one. 
This is, this is to me, this is the greatest miracle and mystery in the whole universe. That in the little human being like us is indwelled and mingled with this all awesome triune God. Mingle with us and becoming one with us. When we exercise our spirit, you know, in our singing, our speaking the Lord's word, it's not just you, but God is actually speaking. God is being released. This is wonderful. So God's economy is to gain such a group of people who are so mingled with him, one with them, one with him, and that they may live him. So we human beings who live on this earth, we live not just our human life, but we live Christ. Like Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, for to me to live is Christ. He lived Christ. So each one of us, I don't live Chinese, you don't live South African, or you don't live whatever, you, whatever race uh, 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 people you are, you live Christ. Amen. Right? Shall we all declare, I live Christ. Amen. For to me to live is Christ. Amen. Okay, let's read uh, point C together, another definition. Life and nature, but not in his Godhead. And to make himself one with man, one with him, does to be enlarged and expanded in his expression, that all his divine attributes may be expressed in you. Through such a mingling, through such an impartation of himself into man, and such a mingling of himself with man, becoming one with man, there is an enlargement, an expansion in God's expression. God is eternally great. He cannot be enlarged in himself. He does not need to be enlarged. He is already large enough, right? He fills the whole universe. But he wants to be enlarged in you and me. In our little heart, as Paul says, that Christ wants to make his home in our hearts. This eternally great God wants to make his home in our little heart. That in our earthly, mundane, just uh, tedious human living, that we can magnify Christ. We can enlarge him. That his divine attributes may be expressed in our human, through our human virtues. He is large in himself, in the heaven, no doubt. But how about in man? Is he large? Is he expanded? When Paul was in the prison in Philippi, well, as he spoke in, in the book of Philippians, according to his earnest desire that he would, he would have Christ magnified in his body, whether through life or through death. What is to be magnified? That means to make him so big, so unlimited. You know, as, as one gets older, we carry a magnifying glass with us. You know, we can't see these days. Uh, you know, after you, it just uh, things are so small. And uh, we are all Christ's magnifying glass. 
that when people see through us, they see a magnification of Christ. You know, to the Roman soldiers, Paul was very small. So small, he should be gotten rid of. Right? Jesus of Nazareth, so small. He should be gotten rid of. But yet in the prison, while he was so small, that in the eyes of the Romans, that we are so, uh, so small, so despicable, yet Paul's desire was that I may make this Christ so large. As he and Silas were imprisoned in that cell there, instead of moaning and groaning, they were praising. They were singing. Oh, they made Christ so big. That caused the jailer to wonder, who is this? Everybody would moan and groan and curse in the, in the prison about all the misfortune, about all the sufferings, and how these two guys, they were singing, they were praising. They made Christ so big. Oh, Christ was enlarged, expanded in their human living. You know, there was uh, such a story that uh, uh, in 1900, when the, the boxers in China, they had, there was the Boxer Rebellion, they were persecuting the Christians uh, there in China. And one day, they were, the boxers were carrying out a, par- a parade on, on the streets. And there was a, uh, a little girl who was a Christian when set be, uh, brought on the back of a wagon and on the way to be execution, executed. And there, all the, all the stores were closed because of the, you know, the parade, all the merchants. And there was a merchant, a businessman, behind the, 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 the front door. There was uh, uh, with everything drawn, and he, he peeked through the, uh, the, the, the drawn gate just to see what's going on outside. And he saw this parade was going, go, passing by, and that little girl was in the back of that wagon. She was, her face was shining, and she was actually singing and uh, praising the Lord. And this merchant was, was all together, was, uh, 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 he was shocked. What's going on? Doesn't she know what she, what she is heading? She's heading to die, to be executed. What is she singing about? What is she so happy about? That caused this uh, merchant to question, I must find out what Christianity is all about. So eventually she got to meet one of the brothers who preached the gospel to him. He got saved, and then he became one of the leading ones later on in the church life. And uh, that little girl, she made Christ so big, right? So in uh, human eyes, she was ready to be removed, terminated. But then she magnified Christ. Christ needs to gain humanity, gain man, making them the same as he is in life and nature, and also through them, he may be expressed in an enlarged and expanded way. Right? This is God's economy. Now, the second point, God's economy is related to his good pleasure, his will, his counsel, and his purpose. These are big words that, is, uh, that Paul used in expressing 
God's eternal purpose, his good pleasure, meaning that uh, something that makes God happy. The economy of God is something out of God's good pleasure. God has this, uh, uh, when we talk about this economy, it's not something that man dreams up, that man puts together. This is something out of God's good pleasure, out of God's desire, out of God's happiness. And also, it is according, it is according to God's will. That means God's intention, right? According to the, 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 uh, the good pleasure of his will, God's, what God intends to gain. And also, is through a counsel, counsel of God. That means it's God's consideration. Just like in Genesis chapter 1, there was God's counsel. The triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, had a counsel, a consideration, and a decision came out of that counsel where the triune God says, let us make man in our image. There was a decision uh, resulting from the divine counsel of the Trinity. And this counsel is to bring forth, is related to God's economy. And finally, purpose related, it refers to God's plan. Refers to God's plan, which is uh, to work out God's uh, pleasure, God's will, Right? According to that counsel, this is God's economy. So God's economy is not a small thing. Uh, it's something eternal, has, has a weight of eternity, is out of God's heart's good pleasure, and is according to his will through a divine counsel and to work out a purpose. Then number three, God's economy is in faith. We read in 1 Timothy 1.4, Paul tells us that, that uh, uh, don't give heed to myths and unending genealogies which produce questionings. All those things just generate, generate, generate question upon question. Why is this? Uh, why are you made this way? Why do, why do, why do uh, 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 human beings are all scattered and... All these things. You have many questions uh, due to the different, different myths and unending genealogies. But then Paul says that instead we need to give heed to God's economy, which is in faith. God's economy is not subject to question. Unlike all the philosophies and all the myths, all the, all the uh, uh, genealogies that... Uh, uh, people are interested in, uh, stimulating your mind to ask about this and that. God's economy is in the realm of faith. What is faith? Faith is not some kind of a hope. Hope is something in the future, right, that you would like to get. I'm hoping to get a new car. I'm hoping to get a, get a raise in my job. That's your hope, right, whether that hope comes true or not. Wait and see. We don't know. It will come through. But faith, faith is based on a fact. Actually, faith 
refers to what God is. Hebrews 11, verse 6 tells us, He who comes to God must believe that He is. God is. That's what our faith hangs on. God's being is eternal. He was, He is, and He will be. I mean, His name is I Am. What a name, right? Bevan, I am. How about your name? What is your name? I am. That means whatever you need, whatever you want, he is. Moses, right? He got a fear to Moses in the wilderness, charged him to go to Pharaoh. So Moses asked God, well, if I'm asked, what's your, well, who sent you? What's your name? God told him, tell him, I am sent you. The I am. I am Jehovah. I am that I am. Our faith believes that God is. With faith, we are not hoping for something to come. With faith, actually, we already believe that it is. It is done. Hebrews 11.1 says what? Now, Faith is the substantiation of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So, yes, you hope for something, but then something, something already substantiated within you. And there's something yet to come, but yet it's already convicted. You already, you already are, have the deep conviction. It is done. You know, many times, you know, in our prayer. As we have, after we finish the prayer, we are so filled with faith. The Lord has spoken to us that we realize it is done. And we begin to praise the Lord. Amen. You're not there just asking, begging for God to do this for you in the future. But after some amount of prayer within you, there is a conviction. Yes, God has heard the prayer and God has already told us it is done. Amen. So from that point on, we begin to praise Him. Amen. Thank Him. Don't ask anymore. You begin to praise Him because it is done. It's already been given. And that's faith. Faith hangs on, hangs on God's Word. If you don't have God's Word, you may be just emptily hoping. But if you have God, if you have God speaking, even though it may not yet appear manifested to you, but within you, you're already convicted. You're already substantiated. It is done. It is here. I already have it. Is the New Jerusalem something, a fairy tale, something in the, that we hope to have? If you have faith, you realize New Jerusalem is already here. Amen. New Jerusalem is done. That's why John saw it. John did not see some material just waiting to be built to, to the New Jerusalem. Oh, some wood there, some, some gold there. Some. John saw the New Jerusalem. Amen. The New Jerusalem is completed. God's economy is in faith. Oh, the enemy these days, especially these days, trying to distract the things by the things seen. Oh, look at this. That one, look at it. He's not so good. Oh, he is not so uh, perfect. Uh, he has all these problems. Dear saints, 
Our Christian life, under God's economy, according to God's economy, is a life of faith, not a life of sight by sight or by touch. Even the day when we first got received the Lord, we got saved not because oh we have seen physically Jesus Christ, we have seen His nailing, His dying for us on the cross. None of us has seen that physically, but yet what brought us salvation is a simple faith, a simple belief. Something has been transmitted into us. A spiritual scenery, a spiritual fact, has been transmitted into us that makes this. Is by faith you see something so real, beyond touch, beyond、uh, what is beyond our sight. God's economy is in the realm of faith. Don't let people distract you to say, "Oh, look at this, look at that." By the according to appearance, according to what it, what is the outward, outward uh, 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 the appearance, right and wrong. Good or bad. That's in the principle of the tree of life. It's in the realm of sight. It's in the realm of touch. But God's economy is in faith.、Amen. He says God's economy is initiated and developed in the sphere and element of faith. Whenever we begin to doubt, we begin to question. Like those involved in the mis-ending genealogies, the enemy always tried to shoot the the uh, the uh, his arrow arrows of doubt, the flaming darts into our mind to cause you think, oh, is there really a God? Is he real? How come you've been praying to him for the last three months? He has not answered your prayer. You've been asking for that new job has not come, right? You even fasted and prayed. God has not answered him. Answer you? Maybe he is not real. Oh, look at the church. Look at all these people, right? It's it's a, it's a motley crew here. It just what kind of people is this? Really a church, right? Who who is that pastor? Who is the one who is uh you know they they uh. uh Uh, look at look at the look at the way they 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 come together is this or that no order, it's just like a marketplace. <laughs> is that a church? Oh, all these questions. Satan is expert in throwing all kinds of dots of doubts into your mind. Dear saints, when you are find yourselves in that kind of a realm, you realize all these questionings are not from God. God does not. Cause quest does not cause you doubt by questions. Yes, God wants you to seek Him, but God does not cause you to doubt. Satan, even from the day of the garden in the Garden of Eden, that's what he did. Came coming to the first the, uh, uh, to Eve, throwing the question: Did God really say that of all the trees in the garden, you shall not eat? It seems that maybe God did not explicitly say every single word, and Satan tried to use some, you know, twisting some of the the facts to stimulate your mind to in, inject doubts into you. Did God really say that? 
he did not specifically say that not all the trees. Satan is very subtle. They're saying when you hear people approach you with questions, how about this, what about right, who is right, who is wrong, what is good, what evil, stirring out the doubt, you know, you know just like what Paul is saying, right? The unending genealogy, the myth that caused questionings rather than God's economy, which is in faith. God's economy is initiated, developed in the, in the, re, in the realm, in the sphere, and element of faith. God's economy is not in the natural realm, nor in the work of law, but in the spiritual sphere of the new creation through regeneration by faith in Christ. Hallelujah. God's economy has not, is not in the natural realm. It's not because, oh, you did well, you have been a, very, a good boy, good girl, very obedient, so now God blesses you. And that because you behave yourself, you do everything lawfully, and you are upright, you are righteous, that God blesses you. No, this is, that is religion. That is in the natural realm. God's economy is in faith. Amen. Don't look at yourself, don't look at others using the outward works as a measurement. We have to come back to faith, which is something in our spirit. Little one says, by faith we are born of God to be his sons, partaking of his life and nature to express him. Number two, by faith we are put into Christ to become the members of the body, sharing all that he is for his expression. If, any, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. These saints, we are, we are after, since we believe in the Lord, doesn't mean that now I'm perfect, I've done, I could, now I do everything right, perfectly. No, we are still sinners, but we are sinners saved by grace. And we have been transferred out of the realm of Adam, and now we are a person in Christ. Amen. Hallelujah for being in Christ. Amen. Christ is our clothing. Christ is our covering. Even our righteousness is Christ. Our standing before God is Christ. Don't try to work up your own righteousness. Christ is our true righteousness. We are now in him. All the heavenly blessings are in Christ. We need to be in the right position. When we're in Christ, all the spiritual blessings are ours. If you're not in Christ, you are still in Adam. You may be a Mr. Gentleman, Mr. La- Mrs. Lady, but you may be, you know, you, you, you are, you are the, the CEO of a company, you are the top achiever, you are the best, uh, the top uh, scientist, or what, whatever you are, you are just the top of the heap. The top of the heap in Adam. But praise the Lord, from the day we believe in the Lord, we have been transferred Amen. out of Adam into Christ. We are nobodies, we are just little ones, we are still full of imperfections, but now I am in Christ, and all the blessings we have, God has for us, are here for us to inherit. Okay, number four, God's economy is carried out by God's dispensing. God's economy 
is a dispensing economy, is a dispensing plan. A verse like John 3.16, which is familiar to a lot of people, which says, God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. He did not merely send us his son. He gave us his son. This giving of the son refers to God's dispensing. He did not just only send his son to redeem us, to die for us. God actually gave us his son. He did, this, that is God's dispensing. He wants us to have his son, to receive his son. He did not just want us to acknowledge his son, to agree with what he did for us. That's not what faith is. Faith, to believe, is to receive him. God gave his son, so we must receive him. Receive him into us. God's dispensing is the imparting of himself into us, according to his plan and arrangement to be our life, our life supply, and our everything in order to make himself one with us. The best way to see this is, uh, uh, you know, God created us, human beings, as an eating vessel, right? When you see a man, say, Christian, right? Christian? Are you John or Christian? <laughs> Sorry, always mixed up these two brothers. Anyway, I know you are twin brother with me. I'm, we're all twin brothers. And uh, let's say you see John that, that he is pale looking, and uh, so uh, uh, you know you, he, he, his his uh, his appearance doesn't look good. And then you come up to him, well, you really look doesn't look good. You don't look good, so. You, uh, you come up with some, some color and you put, put on his face, you know, make him look a little pink. Well, that, that is not God's economy. That is man's work. That's religion, trying to correct you, trying to improve you from the outside. God's economy is to impart, is to give John some vitamins, give him some good food, healthy food. Eat this healthy food for the next seven days your color will change. This is, this is truly, that's God's way. God's, not, God's economy is not to adjust us, to correct us, improve us from the outside, but to impart himself as life, as life supply into us. God's life is the healthiest food on the earth. It's so wonderful that when God created man in Genesis, and he put man before the tree of life, and right away, God's concern was, man, take care of your eating. You have to eat. Man is an eating vessel, right? And be careful what you take in. So, you know, sometimes I wish God would create, create us as some kind of a perpetual machine that it just operates, runs on forever. I don't have to wash dishes. I don't have to cook. I don't have to cook, eat. Wasting so much time, right? I don't know how many... You know, you just, especially you know, housewife, you have to cook, wash dishes, you know, and then we have to eat. Spending a lot of time doing this, three times a day, right? You're adding all together. You have hours, you know, to, to do this kind of thing. God does not intend us to be a, 
you know, to just keep going on without eating. Every day you have to eat in order to survive, in order to live. This human, this, uh, in, this, this, this fact in our human life portrays in the spiritual realm. God wants us to eat Him every day. Amen. So the Lord Jesus says, I am the bread from the heaven. I am the bread of life. You must eat me every day. To take me into you. Every day we cannot live and go, go through a, a day of our Christian life without eating of the Lord, drinking of the Lord, breathing of the Lord. He is our life and life supply. This is God's dispensing. This dispensing is best seen in the, in the matter of eating. So we have to eat Him every day. He says God's dispensing is carried out through the divine dispensing. We see this very clearly in Ephesians chapter 1 the blessing of the Trinity. Number one says the divine nature is dispensed into the believers in Christ through God the Father's choosing, and the divine life is dispensed through God the Father's predestination. Right? Chapter 1, verses 4 and 5 tells us God chose us to be holy, and He predestinated us for unto sonship. Holiness is a word that is attributed to God Himself only. None of us is any bit holy. Even however we improve ourselves, dress ourselves, we are not, not any holier than anyone just walking on the street. The only one who is holy in the whole universe is God himself. Amen. And here we are told that God chose us to be holy. God chose us to be holy implies that God imparts impart His holy nature into us. And He predestinated us unto sonship. We are sons of God, not by adoption. We are sons of God because we have been begotten of Him. His life has regenerated us. So that means God's life has been dispensed into us. And number two, the divine element of which the believers in Christ are made, God's excellent inheritance, is dispensed into the believers through God the Son's redemption unto God's economy of the fullness of the times to head up all things in Christ. God the Son also dispensed himself into us through his redemptive work. In verse 7 of Ephesians 1, we are told that in him we have Redemption. Through Christ's redemption, not only are we cleansed, are we forgiven, but also we have been transferred into another person. To be in Christ means to be in the sphere of Christ and with the element of Christ. Now there's a new element that has been added to us. That's why in that uh, portion, in verses 7 and 8, we are told that now we become God's inheritance. Can you imagine, brothers? You are God's inheritance. God wants to inherit you. If we are what we are naturally, you think God would inherit us, right? I don't care how smart you are, how wealthy you are, how, uh, what a high position you are. According to Isaiah, he said, even man's righteousness is filthy rags. Right? None of us is inheritable. But now, God sees something very precious in us. Through Christ's redemption, Christ's element has been imparted into you. So God says, I want to inherit you. 
you are a precious inheritance to be. So because Christ's precious element has been imparted into us. And number three, the divine essence in which the believers enjoy the process of triune God is dispensed into the believers through God the Spirit sealing and pledging. So God the Spirit also dispenses by his sealing us and pledging of us. Well, sealing is like a stamp, a chop. You know, you put a, a certain uh, image of the, on, the, on the stamp uh, to identify ownership of this book or whatever piece of paper, right? When you, with some ink, put on that uh, stamp and you stamp on that piece of paper or the a book, the ink on the stamp is being transferred onto the object, onto the book or the paper, seeping, soaking, saturating that piece of paper. God the Spirit, as the divine essence, is being transferred, dispensed into us through His sealing us. This weekend, God the Spirit is stamping us, sealing us. Every message, every, every time you call on the Lord, every word that you are saying amen to, there's more stamping, more sealing. That means more what? Saturation. More permeation of the Spirit's essence into us. Praise the Lord for our triune God's dispensing. His holy nature, His divine life, the precious element of Christ, and the divine essence have been transferred, dispensed into us. And number five, God's intention in His economy is to build Himself in Christ into His chosen people. This impartation, this dispensing, in somewhat, is a little bit somewhat general. But here, in Ephesians 3, verse 17, we are told that Christ desires to make his home in our hearts. To make his home means that he is building his house in us. Our little home becomes God's house. God does not want to remain in the heavens. God wants to live, have have his home in our hearts. He is building his home. You look at this building. There are many pieces of brick, you know, the columns and so forth. Now, this is not just merely the different material being put here, but also built up, brick by brick, you know, stone by stone, and being pieced together, connected together. God's work in us is a building work. Not only is he, has he imparted himself into us, he is building by joining and knitting himself with us. He says the most crucial and mysterious matter revealed in the Bible is that God's ultimate intention is to work himself into his chosen people. Sometimes when you sit back, you have time just to consider this. This indeed is the most mysterious, it's the most uh, uh, miraculous, most mysterious thought. God wants to build himself into us, into our fibers, into our very being. Even for Paul to say in Philippians 1.21, for him to live is Christ. I mean, this is, 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 is hard, it's unimaginable. Hard to imagine what is How can a a human being live Christ, live God, right? Someone who is holy, divine, 
yet is being lived out in our humanity. God is being built into us, bit by bit, day by day. B says the central work of God is to work himself in Christ into his chosen people, making himself one with them. God has many works in this universe. His creation was his first work, and then his redemption was his second work, to redeem what God has created. And then the most important part of his work is his building work. He created, he redeemed, and now he is building. This is the central work of God, is to work himself in Christ into us, making himself one with us. Everything that Christ is and everything that Christ has accomplished are for this one thing. Christ is all and in all. We'll see in message two. This one is the all-inclusive Christ. He is not only our Savior, our Master. He is our food, our drink, our clothing, our rest. He is everything. And He is everything so that He can work Himself, build Himself into us. And whatever He accomplished are also for this building. He accomplished the work of incarnation, his human living, his death, his resurrection. All are for his working himself into our being. Number two, all the steps that God takes in our daily life are to fulfill his intention of building himself in Christ into our being. God is taking many steps in our daily life, right? In the morning, God begins to nourish us, right, feeds us, right, as we're having morning revival with him. And then during the day, he may shine on us. He may even rebuke us that for something that we, that we are not living according to him. All that he is doing in us is for the fulfilling of his intention of building himself into us. Now, point C, God's economy and goal, according to his heart's desire, are to build himself into our being and to build us into his being, in order to mingle his divinity with our humanity into one entity, the body of Christ, which consummates the new Jerusalem. The best that we can see this is in the the process of grafting. You know, in the nature, we have such a thing called grafting, where there are two plants. One may be stronger, and one may be weaker in nature, and one that when the weaker branch is grafted into the stronger tree, something happens through that graft, right? The two lives are joined together and interpenetrate each other. And each, each tree, each branch, bears the characteristic of each other. I mean, this is, this is tremendous. Whenever I think about this uh, phenomena in nature, I mean, to illustrate what is uh, in the in the, in the divine realm. This is just, uh, this is too tremendous. And indeed, the Bible tells us we have been grafted into him, right? In Romans 9, Romans 11, we have, he is the olive tree. We have been grafted into him. So this grafting causes God's life to penetrate into our human life and our human nature also penetrate into the divine nature, now bearing a, a marvelous characteristic is God yet man, and man, yet God, right? 
in the, in, in, in the, in the physical life, we have the, the hybrid uh, uh, fruits. You know, nectarine, for instance, is a hybrid of what? Peach and apple or the pear. Then uh, two kinds of fruit just mingle together, producing something sweet, something more wonderful. And now your human life has been penetrated by God's life. And now even God's life has been penetrated by the human life. Now in the heavens, in ascension, it's not just God, but a man is there. There's a man in the heaven. There's a man in the glory. Jesus Christ, the God-man, even in resurrection, in ascension, he is still there. So today, the body of Christ is just a product of divinity and humanity all together mingled, becoming one. This is, that will consummate the new Jerusalem. Now at the end, let's conclude with Roman numeral 6. God's economy is like a great wheel having Christ as its center. The hub of this wheel signifies Christ as the center of God's economy. In the book of Ezekiel, we see there's a great, an awesome wheel turning in, on this earth, rolling back and forth. That is a wheel of God's economy. In the wheel is a hub that, is, that signifies Christ, the center of God's economy. And then the rim signifies Christ and counterpart, the church, the body of Christ. This is the enlargement, expansion of that hub, enable the hub to turn, to roll forward, and see the believers as the many members of Christ are the spokes of the hub spreading to the rim, to the body of Christ, which consummates the new Jerusalem. Indeed, this great wheel is not only the economy of God, but also the moving of the economy of God. God's economy has a move. 2,000 years ago, was only in Bethlehem, was only in the land of Palestine. Now, in the last 2,000 years, God's economy has moved, right, to Europe, actually even first to Africa, to Ethiopia, right, through Philip, and uh, to Europe, to Americas, you know, to, uh, to the whole earth, to China, to Asia, to Russia, my, God's economy is a great wheel turning, and it's still turning. Moving forward, from Genesis 1 until the present, the move of God's economy has never stopped, and today this great wheel has reached us, Amen. reached South Africa, Southern Africa. Oh, we are, anyway, we don't, I don't have the time. The Lord surely is moving very much, even throughout this continent. Praise Him for that. In every age and in every generation, this wheel has been moving, and now we are a part of the move of the great wheel of God's economy. Praise the Lord for God's economy. You and I are a part of it. We have been included as a part of his economy. We have only a very short time, five minutes or so. We still like to get some response from you. The brothers can help us.